All right, we are in Numbers chapter 22. Last week we talked a little bit about Balaam in, in another way. Today we start reading through the story of Balaam. I called today Wanting God's Power. Let me ask you, how many of you have ever felt like in your life someone used you? Someone used you. How many people feel like someone has used you in your life? Yeah. How many have used something? No, I'm not going to ask that question. Uh, when I was in elementary school, I was a pretty good student. I got all good grades all the time. And, uh, but I was just a normal, I wasn't a social butterfly. I wasn't super connected. I didn't have a lot of things to talk about. I wasn't the biggest, the fastest, the strongest. I was just one of the crowd, right? And uh, so there were some popular kids, like there always are in, in every school and every grade. And, and we knew who those were and we knew we weren't them. So it surprised me one day, it was in third grade, and I was sitting at lunch, and one of the real popular kids came over and sat next to me and started talking to me. And I was kind of like, what are you doing? Like in my head, I'm thinking, what is this? This is, this is out of the ordinary. This is weird. This is strange. I don't, I don't understand. I mean, I'm only a third grader, so I didn't dive too deeply into it. I was just like, okay, you're my friend now. So we started talking. And uh, he's asking me what's going on and, and telling me about his life and stuff. And I just thought, well, I don't know how this happened, but this is, this is good. This is fine. This is nice. Well, it turns out the next day was a big math test. And the next, uh, the next thing I knew, I was helping him figure out how to do the math stuff that we were going to do the next day on the math test. And he was one of those kids that when he got a good grade, his parents would give him money. So, like, he got an A on that test because I taught him, I don't know, it was addition, I don't know what it was, but whatever it was I taught him, he got an A on the test, and he came back the next day with the $20 that his dad had given him, which to a third grader is like a million dollars, right? He's like, look, Mark, I got a 20 bucks. I'm like, that is so cool, all right. He didn't give me any <laughs> of the money, and then he went back to his life, and it didn't really dawn on me. I was kind of like, oh, well, that makes sense, because I'm not even sure why you came over and talked to me in the first place. It never dawned on me that he came over to see what he could get from me. He wasn't actually interested in me. He just wanted to use me, right? That, that happens through our lives all the time. People use other people all the time. Consciously, subconsciously, deliberately, or just not giving it any thought, people will bump into you and think, what can you do for me? I know from experience, and you probably do too, that it is truly a deep wound to trust someone, to root for someone, to feel close to them, and then for the realization to dawn on you that they were never really close to you. They were only close to you so they could take from you what would benefit them. Isn't that a wound that we carry with us? It's one of the reasons that when 1 Corinthians 13 describes how we're supposed to interact with each other in love, it is the exact opposite of that kind of behavior. Because love is not self-seeking. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It does not look at me, me, me. But Christians do it all the time too. And we, when we do it, when we realize that we have kind of used someone we've been after what they could do for us and when they don't do for us what we want them to do for us we're mad at them we need to kind of deal with ourselves we need to confess it we need to acknowledge it we need to make it right and i'm going to say to those of you who carry the wounds of being used if you've been used you need to remember 
that your worth, your value, the measure of who you are does not come from how people treat you. I know, especially when it's, a, when it's a person that's close to you, how hard it is to shake loose of those messages that come from how people treat you. But your value is not wrapped up in how people treat you. We sang this morning, I am who you say I am. Knowing the Lord is supposed to inform us and stabilize us so we understand who we are apart from how people treat us. So I say all that because we're going to read this story of Balaam. And last week we did some legwork as we went through the whole scripture. We saw all kinds of places in the Bible from just a few months or weeks after this when Moses talks about it to all the way to Revelation where the apostle John talks about it centuries later. But it all starts here in Numbers chapter 22 with the desire to use someone, to get from them what would be of advantage to me, not actually wanting the person, just what they can do for me. And that's what we're going to see is the foundation and the start of the story as we walk through this story in Baal. Two side notes as we begin. First of all, this. There's a lot of perspectives in the story. There's the perspective of Balaam, who is the prophet. There's the story of Balak, who is the king of Moab. There's the story of God interacting with them. There's the story of a donkey who's going to talk. And like, so there's all kinds of perspectives. But there's one perspective that is not in this story. It's the perspective of Israel. This whole story, this whole journey has been about Israel. And in this story, Israel doesn't know any of this is going on. They don't find out till some... We don't know how they found out, but they didn't find out till sometime later that this was all happening, that this was all going on. And that's a really interesting thing because the whole story is about a nation that's trying to destroy Israel and God providentially protecting them and Israel never knows anything about it. And I would say to you, Maybe sometimes in your life, you're like, God, where are you? Have you ever thought that maybe you can't see all that he's doing? As a matter of fact, I would say it might be a worthwhile presumption for you to make that God is at work in your life in places you don't see right now. Like God did things for you this week that you don't even know. Is that worthwhile? Maybe it would help us when we're like, I don't see what you're doing, God. Well, I'm sure I'm not supposed to see everything you're doing. I'm sure you're doing more than I'm seeing. It comes from the stories like this, where God is at work and they didn't even know he was. The other thing is that this Old Testament story actually has some archaeology connected to it. There are some caves near the Dead Sea that have writings about Balaam on some plaster. They tell a different uh, set of stories. It's not this story, it's other stories about how Balaam is a seer of the gods and he pursues all kinds of other different gods. And that helps us understand a little bit about Balaam and about this whole story. So we'll use that as it's appropriate without getting any kind of deep into archaeology. None of us are archaeologists, but without getting real deep into that, it does help inform what we understand about Balaam. So start with me in Numbers chapter 22, verse 1 down to, we'll go just the first half of verse 4. It says this, Then the Israelites traveled to the plains of Moab and camped along the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. The Moabites said to the elders of Midian, this horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. 
So we start, we start this interaction with Balaam, and they are camped. If you remember, they, we just saw Sihon and Og a couple, uh, a couple weeks ago that they had defeated the Amorites, and they were moving into their towns, and they are positioned across the Jordan River from Jericho. The first place they're going to go when they march into the land, when they cross the Jordan River, is Jericho. And we're probably just weeks or months away from them crossing the, the Jordan River and going and defeating Jericho. So that's where we are in the story. Their journey, their wandering has ended, and they are here poised to go into the promised land. And so as we read that, I want to notice a few things about the the setup here that goes beyond just where they are. The first thing is that we read about this king, Balak, who's the king of Moab. And we think, well, okay, so this is a new person. But we actually read about him two weeks ago in the story of Sihon. He wasn't mentioned by name, but he was called the king of Moab. And the important thing there is that The king of Moab was defeated by Sihon. And then Israel came and defeated Sihon. So this king of Moab, who was defeated by somebody who was then defeated by these other people, is looking at these other people and thinking, if he beat me and they beat him, they're going to destroy us. So he's getting afraid of what could be. What, the way that this, the mindset of an ancient person, an ancient king like this would think is, Our gods are not as strong as Sihon's gods. Sihon's gods are not as strong as Israel's gods. So I need some help because I don't want to get destroyed. I want to find a way for our gods collectively to be able to overcome theirs. And he's going to reach out to a prophet named Balaam. It's possible he doesn't even consider the idea that there's only one God. As a matter of fact, that would be a crazy thought. To, to a king of that time, that there's only one God. There's not only one God. There's all kinds of gods. And so he's not really thinking, well, I'm going to be pitting the God of Israel against himself. He's just like, if there's a powerful God somewhere else, I need him on my side because we have a battle that we need to win. So that's the first thing I notice. Second thing we notice is this. What is the reaction of Moab to Israel? They are terrified. They are afraid. And it says to me that God's existence and power are clear to those on the outside in this story. Those who don't know him, those who don't worship him, there's no doubt in his power, there's no doubt in his existence through his people. It's a really important point as we process all that's going to happen in God's judgment on the nations through these stories. It tells us, number one, that God's The the clearest evidence of his existence and power after creation itself, look at the stars, look at the moon, look at the earth, look at the human body. The clearest evidence for the existence of God is in his people when we trust him and his power flows through us. There are some people probably around us in our lives that the witness of creation should be enough, but we've effectively stopped looking at creation in a lot of ways. We're much more attached to screens now. But I will tell you, they're looking at the people of God. They're looking at your life and trying to decide if God is real, if God is alive, if God is worth believing in. And it comes from as we trust Him. The people of God here, Israel, as they trusted Him and defeated armies, it made those around fearful of the power of this God. And the second thing is this. As God is doing this in Israel, He is showing the nations who He is and inviting them to respond. Through this whole story, this has been the pattern. 
Back in Egypt, when the ten plagues happened, that was a battle of the gods. God says, I am the true and living God. And Egypt says, well, we have our own gods. And God says, well, let's see how that goes down. So he pours out these plagues and they can't stop them. And it overwhelms them. It is an invitation from God to the people of Egypt to see who he is, to trust in him. Edom, a couple weeks ago, when the Israelites marched to the border and said, we we would like to walk through, Edom comes out with armies against them and says, don't you dare come through our territory. They know the power of God, and so they they position themselves as a preemptive strike. Don't you dare come through our territory. We would see the same thing if we went forward in the story a few months to Jericho, because the people of Jericho know of Israel. They know of the power of God, and, and it says, Rahab says, our hearts melt within us as we think about what God has done. So these people know about God. And when they know about God, their response is not to come and worship. Their response is not to bow before the true and living God. Their response is to fight against him, to push him away. So when we read about what God tells Israel to do to these nations, please start by recognizing that they have heard about God. Well, it's not fair. They don't know about God. I'm saying, yes, they do. And it's clear in the story that they do know about him. And they've made a decision to reject him. And if you're like, well, yeah, but that wasn't a very effective telling. You know, I mean, come on, Mark. All they did was hear that God destroyed people. How's that an effective telling? You and I don't really live in that time. I mean, I don't know. Does anybody live in like 1500 BC? Was anybody alive back then? No, I don't think so, right? So it's hard for us to get our heads in their heads, first of all. But second of all, understand this, that God was showing that time and those people in the way that they would understand who he is. Because what they understood about God's was who was the most powerful. And so what God had shown them is, I am the most powerful God, which was an invitation for them to see for themselves who he is. It was the best information that he could give people in their warped understanding. Two other things that, that, well, one other thing here and one other thing before we move on. It goes like this. First of all, notice that Moab makes an alliance with Midian. Midian is a place to the south and to the east of all the action here, but it's a place where Moses spent 40 years. It's a place Israel has marched through. Actually, in Midian is where Mount Sinai is, so it's, a, it's, a, it's an adjoining territory, and they both see Israel as a threat, so they make an agreement, they make an alliance to fight against Israel. That's going to be important later, so I mention it now so that when we get to later and Midian's involved, you, you remember that at the very beginning, Moab makes an alliance with Midian. And the other thing is this. It's not in this passage, but it's in another passage. When, Mo- when Moses retells the story in Deuteronomy 2, he mentions something that's really important. I think this, this may be the thing that you can walk away with today and, and add to your life and help you live a little bit better. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, we find out that before any of this went down, God had already commanded Moses not to take any of Moab's land or provoke them at all. God had said to Moses, leave Moab alone. Now, Moab, Balak, has every reason to look at Israel and think, oh no, they're coming to get me. He's got all kinds of logic. But in truth, he had nothing to fear because God had already said to Moses, don't touch them. So this whole story, this whole story is an illustration of how fear causes us to be desperate to solve a problem that isn't coming. Did you know fear does that? Fear tries to drive you in desperation to solve a problem that's never going to show up in your life. 
I'll just, you can take that and do with it what you will. We're going to keep going. Numbers chapter 22, verse 4, the second half of verse 4. So Balak, son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Beor, who was at Pethor, near the Euphrates River in his native land. Balak said, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that whoever you bless is blessed and whoever you curse is cursed. There's a lot of stuff here. First of all, kind of locations. Where are we? Pethor is far away up near the Euphrates River to the really mostly to the north of where this is all going down around the Dead Sea. It's about 400 miles away. They did not have any vehicles like we have today. They did not have roads like we have today. So 400 miles was a journey. It's the same kind of journey as if I told you today to pick up and start walking and where I want you to wind up is in Columbus, Ohio. Like that's, a, that's the same distance from here to there as he's traveling. So it took about two weeks. Every one of these journeys that we're going to read about, when, when Balak says to his guys, go give a message to Balaam, he's 400, over 400 miles away. It's going to be two weeks of them traveling to take this message to Balaam. And then when Balaam gives them an answer, it's going to be two weeks for them to come back. And then back and forth they go. And when Balaam makes his journey, he's on a donkey for two weeks. He's not like you just came out for the afternoon for a little ride and, and this all goes down. There's two weeks of time in between. That's one. But what we see here is this. And this is a human, but this is a very ancient idea as well. This is a normal human idea. And the idea is this. He hears about Balaam, who seems to have some ability to use power. Some God's power. And he says, I want to get that power and use it for myself. How do I get that power and use it for me? I don't want that God. I don't want to be close to that God, devoted to that God. I don't want him in charge. I just want him to, do, to serve me. I want his power to do what I want him to do. And that was a very normal understanding of the gods throughout history. We can get a God to act on our behalf if we do the right things, if we butter him up, if we do the right sacrifices, if we make the right deal. We negotiate with the gods all the time because the gods don't care about us and we don't care about them. But sometimes we need them. So how do we leverage them into doing what we need them to do? How do we get their stuff? How do we get what they can do for us? This is an idea, this is an ancient idea and really a human idea about how gods work. Now you say, well, but Mark... Isn't the Old Testament and the law kind of the same thing? That, you know, you got to do these things and then God will like you and do good stuff for you. And I understand if you think that, but that's, this is very different. And the reason is, and we've studied this, the reason is because of this. Long before there were any rules, God chose Israel. Long before there were any rules ever given, God chose Israel and said, you're mine. And then when he did give them rules, how did they do? Is good, bad, indifferent. Like it was a it was a brutal failure, right? Over and over and over. And even while he's giving the rules, it's a brutal failure. They're down there making a, a golden calf, right? God's power 
And providence and presence for Israel was not based on their performance. It was not based on them coming to some kind of negotiated deal with him. God chose Israel even though they regularly refused to follow him, even though they distrusted him, even though they grumbled against him, he chose them. And so God gave the law not as a way for them to manipulate his power for them. He gave them the law as a way to move out of their natural understanding of what it's like to interact with the true and living God. In other words, the law was a rule of gratitude for grace. It was a way for them to practice so they could understand how God felt about them, what God had done for them. It was a submission to a God who had made a covenant with them, a God who had promised good to them, a land and a nation and leading them. But God was not just like, here, I want you to have my power. He was like, I want you to know that I love you and I want you to love me. John later on, the Apostle John says in the New Testament, we love him because he first loved us. And the point of that is this. There was no concept of a God who loved people. That was mind-blowing. There was a concept of a God who used people. There were lots of concepts of gods who were indifferent to people. But God loving people? Only the true and living God declares himself like that. So it's not surprising that Balak doesn't get that. It's not surprising really that many people don't get that. So Balak does what kings and nations do in those times. He looks for someone that can manipulate a powerful deity to get his power to work for them. Hey, come curse them, and maybe we'll be able to beat them because they'll be disadvantaged. He doesn't ask, why is this nation who came out of Egypt as slaves so big? Why is this nation who's never had a homeland prospering so much? Why did they win all these battles, these former slaves who've never trained them? Why did they win? He never asks those questions. He just says, I need more power. How can I get some deity on my side? And he hears about Balaam, who has some kind of reputation for cursing and blessing people. We don't know a lot about it. It's possible he had a connection with the true and living God. Certainly in the story, he interacts with the true and living God. He, he does use the name Yahweh in referring to God, so it seems there's some understanding of the God of Israel. But it seems more likely that he interacted with the spiritual realms, with people or, or things, entities posing as gods like demonic forces who could act in ways that gave Balaam credit. And is one of the ways that is the most destructive thing that people can do. Believing that they are serving and worshiping a God that can help them, that can fix them, that can satisfy, that can pay off, but it's not really a God. It's, it's an idol. Today I would say it works like this. We go around and we think we don't worship an idol, we don't put up a little statue and worship it, but we go around looking for things to do what only God can do. Stuff to fix my life, stuff to offer a little relief or help, stuff to work it out. But in the end, it never can. It can never sustain it. People look at relationships. If I only had a relationship, if I had the right relationship, then I would feel full, then I would feel complete, then I would feel satisfied. You're looking for a relationship to do what only God can do. People look to money. If I had enough money, I could feel secure, I could have freedom, I could, but you're looking for money to do what only God can do. Power, influence, popularity. People worship a God of their making. And those gods may seem to work in the short term, but they can't actually hold up in the long run. That mindset is rightfully called idolatry. 
And the mode of idolatry is so unlike true worship. It's like, I'm going to go believing that this thing will do these, these God-like things for me. I don't want to actually be devoted to it. I don't want to give my life to it. I don't want to actually be connected to it. I don't want to love it. I just want it to do what it will do for me. Unfortunately, many people interact with the true and living God like this. God, I, thanks for being here for me. Thanks for being around. But I'm coming to you for what you can do for me. Please mind your boundaries, God. This is my life. I'll let you know what I need. Stay over there. God, do this for me. God, help me here. God, protect me there. God, give me this. I don't actually want you, just what you can do for me. People of God, this is one of the most poisonous things in Christianity today. People who act like God is an idol. Something to use, a genie to, to come and grant me favors and wishes. How would I know if that's me? Well, your prayer life is often a place where you can see that. Do you seek him or what he can do? Do you seek his way or is prayer a way for you to try to seek your way with God's power added to it? And there's so much of that, like God's timing, God's yeses, God's noes. If Balaam had truly been worshiping God, the end of the story would be this passage we're going to read next. Verse 7 down to verse 13. It says this, The elders of Moab and Midian left, taking with them the fee for divination. When they came to Balaam, they told him what Balak had said. Spend the night here, Balaam said to them, and I will report back to you with the answer the Lord gives me. So the Moabite officials stayed with him. God came to Balaam and asked, Who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent me this message. A people has come out of Egypt that covers the face of the land. Now come and put a curse on them for me. Perhaps then I will be able to fight them and drive them away. But God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You must not put a curse on these people because they are blessed. The next morning, Balaam got up and said to Balak's officials, go back to your own country for the Lord has refused for me to go with you. So Balaam goes to God and he says, God, these guys came. They want me to curse some people. What do I do? And God says, what do you say? No, not hard, is it? He said, no, you can't do it. He actually expands it from there and says, I'm, I'm, I've already blessed these people. You can't curse them. I'm not going to undo what I've said. I've said, no, that's the end of the story. And it's an important moment in the story that builds the foundation for the stuff we're going to read in the coming weeks. Because what they do with that no plays out from here. God says no. There's enough in this that God has said that it's very clear. Balaam should know that's the end of the story. And even the Moabite king, when he hears what has happened, the Moabite king has enough to know better. But they won't leave it there. And I, I think for us, this is, as I talk about, do you want God or what he can do for you? This is a place where the rubber meets the road. One of the, how do I know if I just want God or if I want what he can do for me? How would I know? I mean, they're kind of tied together. Yeah, being in the presence of God, there's stuff that happens for you and we love the stuff that happens for me. How do I know if I love that stuff instead of him? How, how do I know if I want him or that stuff? Here's one of the ways you can know. What we do with a no from God tells us a lot. When God says no, what does that do in you? What do you do with it? If you trust him, if you're devoted to him, if you love him, then his no is something we work to trust. Okay, God, 
I don't get it. I'm, I mean, you can be sad. You can be confused. You can, you can be overwhelmed. You can be discouraged with a no. Absolutely. But I'm going to work to, God, you are good. I'm going to trust you. But if God's no makes you double down on what you want, then you know all you wanted God for was what he could do for you. If you're like, well, fine, God, if you're not going to do it for me, then I'll do it for myself. It says a lot, doesn't it? Sometimes God says a no, and it has a reason and a meaning behind it, but the most practical application for us is who are you after? Do you want God or what He can do for you? As God's people, I would say, how about if we let God's no be a no? How about if what He says, we follow? How he tells us to interact in honesty, we do. How he tells us the moral lines are here and here and here, we go, okay, well, then that's what I'm going to do. What he tells us in finances, what he tells us in relationships, what he tells us in revenge and in getting back at people, what he tells us in what comes out of our mouth, when God says a no, we trust the no because we trust him. This is where the rubber meets the road for us. Because if God is good, if God is faithful, if God is for us, if God is reliable, and we are going to trust Him, then when God says no, we're going to rest in that. When God said no to Israel, it was for their good. When God said no to Balaam, it was not a no that was negotiable. When God says no to us, we need to come to it by faith. God invites us to trust Him like He invited His people to trust Him. And so from Balak's plan that we read about today, We have to ask ourselves, do we want God or just what he can do for us? What would it look like this week if you made it a point to pray what we sang this morning? I just want you. Nothing else will do. Only you. If I have you, I have everything. But without you, I have nothing. Maybe you don't know how that all plays out. I don't know how that all plays out. But maybe if I set my heart that way, if I made that my prayer, God would show me things I never expected to see and would pull me closer than I've ever realized was possible. Lord, help me see you. Help me know you. Help me hear you. Help me trust you. Help me follow you. Help me want you. Let's start that right now.